So, how free did you feel in the meditation? (laughs) Or how caught? Or how reactive? Anybody feel completely free the whole time? That would be Darian here, okay. That's our resident Buddha over here on, our, on my left. I'm definitely more caught than free. Yeah, so our practice moment to moment is to look at that. You know, what's... What am I... Where am I caught? Where am I not free? So I want to say a little about freedom from a Buddhist perspective and in independence, what the Buddha meant by independent. Uh, and this is paradox of there being independence and there being no real independence because everything is interdependent with everything else. That's why I said happy interdependence day because <laughs> no such thing in the universe is independent. Right? It's, it's, Everything lives in a, in a web, in a matrix, in a system that's uh, you know, inextricably linked to everything else. John Muir says, touch one thing and you touch everything else in the universe. Uh, this bell was created from the Big Bang, as was the chair you're sitting on, and your fingernails, and your spectacles. So a story, the 4th of July weekend was approaching and Miss Pelham, the nursery school teacher, took the opportunity to tell her class about patriotism. We live in a great country, she announced. One of the things we should be happy is that in this country we are all free. Trevor, who was a little boy in her class, came walking up to her from the back of the room. He stood with his hands on his hips and said loudly, I'm not free, I'm four. So, anyhow. (laughs) So it's an interesting notion, this idea of independence, of a nation-state. you know, Buddhism's oriented more towards the inner state of freedom. You know, clearly, we have certain freedoms in this country. And it's a beautiful thing. And something to be celebrated. In the Constitution, it says the, inali- the unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice. So that's partly what was created out of... Happiness. Happiness. What did I say? Justice. Did I? Oh, yeah. And the pursuit of justice. I like yours. Yeah. Maybe because I'm seeing so much injustice that I, I was thinking the pursuit of justice. I think I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm English, so what, you know. I don't know, I don't know anything about this holiday. Yes, property, yes. Well, that's, that shows you who wrote the print. The, the. So this is um, a letter from John Cleese um, from Monty Python. <laughs> This was, this was written, I, it's a very long letter, I probably won't read it all, but um, it was written after the election, the, the, the 2004 election, when many of us were not so happy about the outcome of that election, including John, and he said, to the citizens of the United States, in the light of your failure to elect a competent president of the USA, and thus to govern yourselves, we hereby give notice of the revocation of your independence, effective today. As Sovereign Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II will resume monarchical monarchical duties over all states, commonwealths, and other territories, except Utah, which he doesn't fancy very much. (laughs) Your new prime minister will appoint a minister for America without the need for further elections. Congress and Senate will be disbanded, 
A questionnaire will be circulated next year to determine whether or not any of you noticed. <laughs> to aid in the transition to a British Crown dependency, the following rules are introduced with immediate effect. There is no such thing as U.S. English. We will let Microsoft know on your behalf. The Microsoft spell checker will be adjusted to take account of the reinstated letter U and the elimination of E-I-Z-E. -I -E. You should look up revocation in the English Oxford Dictionary. Then look up aluminium. <laughs> Check the pronunciation guide. You will be amazed at just how wrongly you have been pronouncing it. The letter U will be reinstated in such words as favor, neighbor, Skipping the letter U is nothing more than laziness on your part. Your part. Likewise, you will learn to spell donut without skipping half the letters. <laughs> he goes on. Hollywood will be required occasionally to cast English actors as the good guys. Hollywood will be required to cast English actors to play English characters. You should stop playing American football. There is only one kind of football. What you refer to as American football is not a very good game. You have noticed that no one else plays American football. You will no longer be allowed to carry our own guns. You will no longer be allowed to carry, our own, carry anything more dangerous in public than a vegetable peeler. Because we don't believe you are sensible enough to handle potentially dangerous items. You will require a permit if you wish to carry a vegetable peeler in public. All American cars are hereby banned. They are crap and it is for your own good. <laughs> When we show you German cars, you will understand what we mean. <laughs> you will learn to make real chips. Those things you call French fries are not real chips. Fries aren't even French, they're Belgian. Those things you insist on calling potato chips are properly called crisps. As a sign of penance, five grams of sea salt per cup will be added to the all tea made within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This quantity will be doubled for tea made within the city of Boston itself. Please tell us who killed JFK. It's driving us crazy. <laughs> and on it goes. <clears throat> Anyhow. So, that has nothing much to do with anything at all. So, but I am curious about uh, what is meant by freedom, what is meant by liberty, what is meant by happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Some would say that's a, a folly in itself, since happiness, true happiness is, is inherent in our nature, not in something that we can seek, because what we seek and find will change and be lost. That's not the source of real happiness. And what are we independent from? Can we really be independent from anything? So from a Dharma perspective, we're cultivating independence from that which causes suffering, from the reactive states of mind. So I think of some great examples of independence, like when Nelson, Nelson Mandela left Robben Island and was released, there was a certain independence from hatred, an independence from vengeance, an incredible nobility of mind and heart. And the same is evident in uh, Dr. King's speeches, where he was so clear about not being caught in hatred despite all the hatred and intense bigotry that was coming his way, to be free from the mind that wants vengeance. As the Buddha said, hatred never ceases with hatred, but by love alone. I like the story that Jack tells a lot about the two prisoners who were, I think, political prisoners in prison for a long time, released. And one of them says, do you forgive your captors? And the other one says, no. And the other prisoner says, well, they still have you in prison then. So when we don't forgive, who's the prisoner? 
So there's a lovely line uh, from the Buddha where he says, talking about lay practitioners, not as monastic practitioners, he said, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women, lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white, enjoying sense pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, intrepid, I forget that word, uh, and become independent of others in my teaching. Independent of others in my teaching. What does it mean to be independent of, the, of one's teaching? To know the teachings, to know the truth for oneself, to not need to rely on an external authority, to look to your own experience. So, there's a place for study and practice and learning from teachers and teachings. But the point is to know this for yourself, to know it from the truth of your own experience. When we have deep insight into truth, into reality, we gain a certain confidence of what we know to be true. As I'm sure you've had tastes in your experience. So this is what the Buddha said close to uh, his death. He said, Therefore, Ananda, Ananda was the Buddha's uh, attendant. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a refuge to yourself. Take yourself to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourself. And those Ananda who either now or after I am dead shall be a lamp unto themselves who take themselves to no external refuge. But holding fast to the truth as their lamp, holding fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone beside themselves. It is they who will reach the highest goal. So this is a very challenging uh, and empowering statement. That by our own practice, our own inquiry, our own understanding, we come to see what's true. We don't need to keep looking for some external validation. There's something very uh, powerful and aligning when we, when we taste the truth, when we see things clearly, we know. There's a, there's a knowing, there's a conviction. But of course, it gets a little tricky because we can also delude ourselves. I know and you don't. I'm right and you're wrong. And then we have religious warfare. This is a story from Nasruddin, who's spraying pepper around the garden of his house and his students. Nasruddin's a crazy wisdom teacher from the Sufi tradition. And his students say, Nasruddin, why are you spraying pepper around the garden? And he said, oh, to keep the tigers away. And they said, but there's no tigers for a thousand miles. See, it works. (laughs) So in the text, there's this line that says the meditator, this is also from from the mindfulness, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha says repeatedly, the meditator abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. The meditator abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. So how is your meditation when you think about that statement? How is the Velcro mind? Something comes up, ooh, stick. Ooh, hook, <laughs> grab. Yeah. Not so easy to abide independent, not clinging to anything. Yeah, we, 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 we're kind of covered in glue. <laughs> Our mind and heart's covered in glue. And we glom onto things experiences, fantasies, daydreams, thoughts, identities, hopes, fears.
Does this sound appealing to abide independent, not cling to anything in the world? I'm just curious, does this sound appealing? Or does this sound like not appealing? Hands up who think it sounds appealing. Okay. Anybody thinks it sounds not so appealing? Yeah, not so sure. Yeah, not so sure. Yeah. I'll say a little more about what that means as we go along. It doesn't mean we don't have, we, we're not engaged with the world and life and people and relationship. We, we, we still have needs, we have wants, we have desires, we have plans, we have visions, we have uh, projects. But it's how we hold all of it. You know, so much of the Dharma is talking about how we relate to experience. You know, we're appreciating the sound of this lovely bell as it gets rung every evening. Or we grabbing it. I want it. I like it. I'm taking it home. I'm going to steal it. (laughs) I'm going to make one. I'm going to buy one. I'm going to something. This is from Mary Oliver from a poem called In Blackwater Woods. She says, every now, everything I've ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires in the black river of loss whose other side is salvation. Whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So she's not saying be independent, not hold on to anything, not enjoy anything, not have relationship with anything. But when a time comes to let it go, which of course is who knows when, we're not holding, we're not fixating, we're not grasping. There's some movement, there's some freedom, there's some ease. And not so easy. When our partner says, you know, I'm really done with this relationship, I'm out of here. Or we get asked to change jobs, or we lose our house, or... And we get so caught in wanting something to be different. When, so think about the times that you've gotten caught recently, like in the last mm, 20 minutes, you know, <laughs> when you were caught in something, wanting something, grasping at something, yeah, clinging to something. Yeah. Does it feel free? Does it feel peaceful? Does it feel satisfying? Does it feel enjoyable? Does it feel... Mm, what does it feel like? What does it feel like when we're holding on? Wanting something to be different, wanting this experience to be different. Anybody? What does it feel like? Rope burn. Rope burn. <laughs> Anything else? Desperate. Desperate. Yeah, that's a painful feeling. Yeah. Another poem. This is a lighter, a lighter take on this incessant play we have around holding on, not being so independent. Unwise pers- purchases from the poet George Bilger. They sit around the house not doing much of anything, the box set of the complete works of Verdi unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look like exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only use once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk 
at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room, I actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them, and that by tape six or so they're happily married, raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terrajote. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias, and I wonder if there's somewhere in this teeming city that lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner, near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table, where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case, next to the abandoned chess set, a woman who always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. <laughs> and while the two of them discussed dark clusters in Cezanne, while they fenced delicately to the Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as is to seem miraculous. So the lives that we live in our imagined fantasy world. You know, we all do it. We've all got our, you know, chest set in the closet or our Castilian Spanish tapes or whatever it is, you know, either physically or in our mind, you know. So the doorway to independence, to freedom from a, from a Dharma perspective is the it's quality of awareness that I was pointing to. The quality of mindfulness, this very simple capacity to know, to be aware, to be awake, to see all of these dances, of these dramas, these stories, these fantasies we play out, to see the dreamlike nature of them. Yeah, how many fantasies have we lived out and played out in our minds or in our lives? And we look back, it's like a dreamscape, isn't it? It's like all these worlds and lives we've lived and things we've attained. And, and then where are they? They just, they, they're like wind through the fingers. And what's amazing about this, this power of awareness, as you know, is it has the power to unhook, to unbind. Because when we're, when we're fully present to something, we have so much more capacity, so much more resources in the moment. And just like when we're sitting in meditation and we're lost in a thought. I know it's rare, but when we get those rare moments, you're lost in thinking. And you, you, you know, you're back at work and you're at you know, your desk or you're having a row with somebody and you're convincing them how right you are. And then and you wake up. You know, and you might be feeling angry and fearful and frustrated. And then mindfulness arises, and what happens? We feel, it's like, we see the dream of it. We wake up from the dream, from the trance. And in that moment, this space, this clarity, we're no longer hooked, we're no longer bound in that story, that drama. So there's a sense of freedom. So we have moments of freedom all the time when we wake up from these stories, from these dramas. When we wake up from the grip of these forces that take over us. This is from Jennifer Wellwood, called Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain, the I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game to play is purest delight to honor its form, true devotion. Each condition I flee from pursues me, right? We all try to pursue, really, we try to, you know, drive fast cars and get on planes to pursue, to, to uh, flee from ourselves. <laughs> we forgot, we sort of, you know, we 
we we checked our bags in, we checked all our habits and tendencies, you know, check bags and we get to Honolulu, it's like, oh, right, I'm still me, it's still my mind. <laughs> it's still my worries and my fears or my projections or my dramas. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Mindfulness welcomes our experience. Mindfulness is, is, is fearless. Awareness is courageous. There's no fear about what it's going to meet. Our ordinary small mind has a lot of fear and ideas and preferences. But awareness simply meets whatever it is. has a kind presence to it. That's freedom. When we're no longer running from ourselves. And I've done long retreats and, well, it didn't have to be a long retreat. I've done, you know, a lot of retreats and um, there have been times on those retreats where I've been in the darkest house, really, really desperate, fearful places, working with terror, working with annihilation, working with despair, working with depression, working with fear, working with hopelessness. And, um, and there's something about the steadiness of mindfulness, of awareness, to, to, to keep resolving, to show up, to meet kindly with presence, with attention, to touch those places, to open to them, to feel them. As Jennifer says, as we welcome them, it transforms them, or it transforms our own experience in relationship to them, where we develop a certain steadfastness or courage. We see that awareness, uh, the nature of our being, has a capacity to hold everything, no matter how difficult, how painful. And we will all meet those places in our lives. It's the nature of being a human being. It's not to get to some ivory castle of peace and love and light. Um, It's to embrace the fullness of our human experience, both the joy and the deliciousness of being on this planet, and the challenge of loss and fear and getting old and loneliness and all of that. So I was at a, a party a um, couple of weeks ago with a, uh, a friend's birthday party. And a dear friend of mine, um, uh, where there was this big swing in the garden, like an adult swing, like we went through the redwood trees. And... Um, you know, it was, this, it was this quintessential moment of everyone's dressed up. It's a beautiful summer evening. People are happy, celebrating my friend's birthday party. She gets on the swing. She doesn't quite get on the swing. She falls off and she breaks her neck. Just boom, just like that. Two vertebrae get crushed. She's like a hair's breadth from being a quadriplegic. And she rushed to hospital. Eight hours of surgery. She fortunately uh, has been a dancer. She's been a dancer for 30 years. She's practicing mindful movement. Very fluid. Very open body. Very open heart. And uh, because of that, I think, be supported by her practice. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a form of deep practice that she does. That she had this beautiful attitude of surrender and flow with that whole, the whole experience. And of course, the, the body wisdom and knowing that comes from you know, bringing presence to the body for 30 years, the surgeon couldn't believe that she wasn't paralyzed. She isn't paralyzed. She's planning to make more or less a full recovery. It will take a long time. But um, the point of the story is, is what one knowing the transience of life, but also knowing how to meet conditions. You know, our practice, we practice for those times. Yeah. Just like when here, when, for those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, when Lama Paldin Gyatso was here, who had been imprisoned by the Chinese in Tibet for 33 years and put through unspeakable torture and starvation, abuse, and and survived with his mind and his heart open and compassion flowing and 
a testament to that the independent this is that that's true independence where his mind wasn't gripped with hatred and with blame and judgment but he was able to stay remarkably steady and has no hatred for his captors or the system it's a beautiful example of what's possible So when the Buddha talked about freedom, he talked about freedom from the forces that cause suffering. So to look into, into your own heart and mind, what, what causes suffering? What is it worth being free from? Yeah. And as you know, he talked about the forces of hatred, the forces of greed, the forces of ignorance. He taught practices that counteract those tendencies. Taught the metta practice, loving kindness, compassion, joy practices. He said, develop a mind so full of space, so full of love it resembles space. That can't be tainted or marred. Develop a heart so full of love resembles space. So I think, you know, I talk this, about this a lot, I think one of the things that we need independence from in, in, in probably didn't afflict the Buddha so much was, is freedom from the way we're cruel to ourselves, our judgments, our critic, our high standards, our berating ourselves. What would it be to have independence, freedom from that voice, that tyranny of that, that, that voice? So whenever, you, whenever a judgment comes up, notice it, pay attention. Oh, judging, thank you, that's really helpful. Great, I'm really a crap meditator, thank you, that really helps my practice. <laughs> May you be happy, may I be happy. You need to notice it every time you're on yourself. Oh, you're a bad driver, you're so uptight, you're so, you know, oh, thank you, thank you. That really, that's kind of you to point that out, that really helps my day. Have a nice day, may I be happy. Use the meta practice, the saying of these kind, friendly statements as a way of counteracting that voice. Freedom from the from the from the force of clinging that I've mentioned before. To see and and, and the doorway to that is to see the pain of it. Just like when we when when someone's grasping at us in, in a relationship or work or in a friendship or in a family. What does it feel like? It doesn't feel free. It feels demanding. It feels confining. It feels sometimes violent, actually, to be demanded on in a certain way. So to feel, you know, what what allows us to let go of the hot coal of longing is to feel the pain of it. To think, um, you know, in the way that we postpone our happiness. If only I could get to the fireworks tonight, I know it's going to be a great evening. If only I, you know, if only I get this and get that and have this and have that. Right? We know this. It's not, it's not something you don't know. But to keep seeing that. Oh, yeah, to see when we're toppling forward. Oh, if I just have this experience. If I just... You know? It's amazing how the mind keeps falling into the same traps, isn't it? So we have to be kind to ourselves, not judge ourselves, just like, oh, ow, yeah, no, that doesn't work. Let go. To let go of, to to look at the force of ignorance, our delusion. A little hard to look at, really, because we don't see it, because it's... We're deluded. <laughs> we don't think we're deluded. <laughs> Hands up who thinks they're deluded. I'm not deluded. You might be deluded. <laughs> no, we like to think we know what's right, what's true, right? We like to believe what's going on in our mind. 
I know how the world works and I know what's going on. But to see the unconsciousness of our beliefs. So I was at a teacher meeting, an international teacher meeting, a couple of weeks ago with Jack and some folks from here and folks from different traditions. And um, one of our uh, colleagues uh, led us, there's about 230 teachers in this, in the, in a, um, he, he, he teaches this work called, mostly with youth at risk, he teaches this work called um, I forget exactly what he calls his work, but anyhow, we did this, this uh, practice called the Power Shuffle, which is looking at uh, issues around diversity um, and justice and injustice and to see what's held in a community. And there's, there's two lines, and you stand behind the line, and then you walk across the line if, you, if, the, if, you, if, if your answer is yes to the question. And it may be, you know, have you ever experienced um, abuse as a woman? Or have you ever experienced ridicule for your race or for your religious beliefs? Or have you ever felt uh, excluded from a community because of your sexual orientation? And just looking over the many, many ways that, that racism and sexism and all kinds of injustice issues uh, are experienced in a community, in the Buddhist community or any other community, the pain, the suffering. And to see when people walk across the line and to see the, the pain and also the commonality of experience and, and the, the fragility of being in the human body. And because of the ignorance in the world and the suffering that each one of us has to experience in different ways, it was a very powerful exercise and very powerful for many of the teachers who haven't been so exposed to that justice work. So lastly, the, the latter part of the talk, I want to talk a little about um, uh, this, this notion of interdependence, because really there isn't really any independence from anything, really, because as if there was anything, if there was one thing that was independent in the world, well, it wouldn't really work because everything is, as I mentioned, connected to everything else. So there's a lovely teaching in um, uh, uh, Huayan Buddhism, the Chinese uh, form of Chan Buddhism, where they have a teaching that points to the fact that everything is interdependent, interconnected, interrelated, and interpenetrating. That nothing is separate, nothing is unique, nothing is in isolation. So Thich Nhat Hanh uses this example, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, and he, put, he picks up a piece of paper and he says, what is this? What is this? I just told you, but what is this? It's a piece of paper. He says, when I see this, I see trees, I see the forest, I see water, I see rain, I see the sun, I see the moon, I see the scars, stars, scars, stars. But of course, we don't see things like that. We, we believe everything. We, see, we look at this bell and we don't see that it's related. We see that it's just sitting there in isolation. The mind separates things into this and that, self and other. But when we look closely at our experience, we see how everything is affecting everything else. Like the suffering that you've experienced in your life is one of the things that has made you be here this evening. Sometimes the most painful thing in our lives leads to the most beautiful thing in our lives. We wouldn't wish that suffering on anybody and yet part of our suffering is what is allowing us to be here tonight. If you weren't suffering, you'd probably be watching the fireworks rather than looking to see what the truth of things, right? (laughs) 
Why would you slap out all the way to Spirit Rock if there wasn't some deep yearning to be free? Right? And these teachings offer that possibility. So what's beautiful about this law of cause and effect of how things, uh, in, uh, dip, things arise in dependence on one another is that it allows the possibility of change. We're not static, we're not fixed, we're not stuck, and by our, by our efforts, by our choices, by our actions, by our practice, we can transform who we are, how we are, the way we are. So there's a beautiful line from Padmasambhava, who's one of the founders of Tibetan Buddhism, he said, if you want to understand your past, look to your present conditions. If you want to understand how you were living in the past, look to your present conditions. How you're living in the present is a consequence of how you were living in the past. If you want to know your future, go look in a crystal ball. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> he said, look to your present actions. How you live in this moment, just like how you live today, is affecting how you are now, right? It's not rocket science, but that's the principles on how we practice. If we want to be loving people, we practice love. If we want to be generous, we practice generosity. If we want to be kind, practice kindness. If we want to be awake, practice wakefulness. So and we like to think that we're all very separate in here, all of how many are in here, 50, 60 people. We all have these neurons, these mirror neurons that are firing that, you know, we feel someone cries and we feel we have some neurons that, res- that, that trigger the same part in our brain that would, would also be triggered when, we, when we're crying. That we feel the field of experience in a room. We resonate, we empathize with people because we, we're not separate. This is from Dr. King. He says, whatever affects one directly affects all, indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Or as Thich Nhat says, we enter are. I am in you, you are in me. You are in me because you're in my awareness and vice versa. It gets kind of a little, you know, claustrophobic sometimes. <laughs> Enough room. So, you know, nature is a wonderful teacher of this. Nature is, is probably the, the, the quintessential teacher for understanding the complexity of our web of life and our interdependence. Just look at how you're feeling in this moment because of the weather. Right? Maybe you're feeling a little glow from having been in the sun today. Or you're like me, you're feeling hot and sweaty and sticky. Not because I haven't showered. Ah. And then the AC comes on and it feels like Nibbana. And then we start to feel too cool and drafty and we wonder if we're going to get chill. Ah. Or maybe we don't like the noise. We, we've suddenly lost peace because the sound of the, you know, the engine thing, whatever that is, whatever crates, you know, I don't know what crates call that, something, some machine, something underneath the floor that's very separate from me. You know. You know, I, I, I tell this story a lot about when I'm in my doing nature retreats and we're, we're sitting by a lake or a pond and we, we camped out for a few days or a week. Um, especially noticeable when I do the retreats in the desert and we're by a little stream. 
for some days and um, or a week, and we're drinking from the stream solely. And uh, you know, over some days, our body is mostly that stream. You know? Just like the the water we drink from the tap, we're mostly, you know, we're mostly snowmelt. I am seventy percent snowmelt. No wonder I feel cold a lot. <laughs> But no, you think, oh, no, this is Mark. He's got skin and bones and clothes, and it's got nothing to do with the rain and the falling on this and the snow falling on the Sierras. Well, where does our water come from? It comes from the oceans and the skies, and we're seventy percent water. So, you are look. We are all mostly mountain stream water and snow melt. Hi, snow melt. Nice to see you. And the mind goes, Nah, I don't believe that. I'm, I'm me. You know, I drink water, but I'm me. So, The point of this talk was to get to some reflections, which I want to get to, because we're running out of time here. So the questions I wanted to ask you was, how does genuine freedom show up in your life? What does it mean? How does it look? How does it feel to be free? And what reveals to you your own interdependence? What reminds you that you're interconnected with everything? And to see how you go in and out of those, those, those worlds. You know, I can be riding my bike. I often ride my bike out here in West Marin, the beautiful back roads, and I'm one feeling a beautiful connection with the beauty and the hills and the birds and the flowers and and sometimes the sense of self dissolves and there's just there's no one riding there's just senses happening coming and going and and then a big pickup truck comes by racing up to me drives really close almost pushes me off the road, and I'm suddenly feeling very separate and very pissed off. (laughs) Clearly very interdependent with that truck and the truck driver, but feeling very isolated and separate again and suffering. And that moment contracted, that moment of spacious freedom has dissolved. So I just want to leave you with that question tonight. We're going to finish a little early tonight. Um, But to reflect for yourself, how does freedom show up in your life? How do you know, how do you taste freedom? In your experience, in your meditation, in your heart, in your love, in your dance, in your play, in your whatever it is. And what reveals to you your interconnection with things? To see how we're constantly moving, shifting in relationship to our environment, to the people we're around. That's why the Buddha said, hang out with wise people. We're positively affected by people. That's why we practice together, because we're affected by this collective presence. So I want to close with a little um, reading from Thomas Merton, who, you know, it's interesting, a lot of these great mystics, they were, they were kind of reclusive and hermits. He lived mostly in silence, in a, in a silent monastic, relatively silent monastic order. And yet, often deeply connected and deeply heartfelt love for all of life. 
He writes, in Louisville, I think it's pronounced Louisville, Louisville, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious, of spacious self-isolation and monastic holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine became incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking round shining like the sun. So, happy Interdependence Day to you all. May you enjoy delicious, spacious freedom and fireworks. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of this lovely evening. And uh, this lady needs a ride to San Francisco, preferably to the Richmond. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.